millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I will lead you forth and will lead you back again. And you will carry with you the honor of my name. You will give proofs of the spirit that is in you before the small and great, before lay folk, clergy and religious. For I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which none shall be able to resist. I will bring you before pontiffs and rulers of churches and of the Christian people, in order that I may do as is my way and use what is weak to put to shame the pride of the strong. The mystical death of Catherine of Siena in Raymond of Capua's The Life of Catherine of Siena, 1395. Welcome to the other half. Episode 4.9, Catherine of Siena, Speaking Truth to Power. First of all, yes, I know this episode is super late. My house has recently become a hot den of plague, which rather put the kibosh on writing this episode. Not very nice, will not give you the gory details, would not recommend. I do my best to keep to a regular schedule, but sometimes life just gets in the way. Speaking of plague... I'd also like to issue a quick correction, and this is a somewhat embarrassing one. In episode 4.7, the third episode on Joanna, I made the somewhat outrageous suggestion that COVID had killed 6.5% of the global population. That was based on some quick maths that I had done, and I am delighted to say that it is incredibly inaccurate. The actual figure is something like 0.07%. Still a lot of people, but nothing like what I suggested. Really sorry about that. Good job I don't work in epidemiology, I guess. Now, before Christmas, we had four episodes on the indomitable Joanna I of Naples, a ruling queen who took her kingdom through the tumult of war, plague and schism. However, she was not the only influential woman surrounding the papacy at this time. The other is the subject of this episode the writer, church doctor, and eventual saint, Catherine of Siena. 
I mentioned her briefly in the final episode on Joanna, as they did interact in those final years when they found themselves on opposite sides of the Great Schism. As a Catholic saint, Catherine has two lives. One as a person in the historical record, and the other as a venerated figure. Of course, these two align in many ways, but it's important to note that most of the sources that we have of her are either from her own writings or from other authors who sought to promote an emerging, saintly cult behind her that would eventually see her canonised. Google her, and you will see that almost all the videos and articles written about her are from that religious angle. But she did have a tremendous influence on the course of history as well. Her most prominent biographer was her confessor, Raymond of Capua, someone who can be considered reliable in his knowledge of Catherine's life, but his biography is really a puffed propaganda piece. Her life was relatively short, but packed a punch. Born into relative obscurity, she managed to make a real name for herself in the courts of Italy and Avignon as a Carif the Sick for her commitments to her ascetic beliefs and condemnation of what she saw as sinful behaviour. Unusually for anyone, let alone a woman at this time, she spoke truth to power, and was a formidable enemy for those who opposed her. She was also one of the most prolific female writers of the whole Middle Ages, and, as we'll see, had an outsized influence over the papacy. Finally, I'd like to give a quick note on naming conventions. I will continue to use anglicised names in this series, as I did with Joanna of Naples. So, Catherine is Catherine, not Caterina, as she would be in Italian. And before we get going, I'd like to thank all of my Patreon supporters who keep the show going. If you too would like to support the show, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. And you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter as well. And one real final thing, I want to give a quick content warning on this. This episode will contain descriptions of eating disorders and self-harm, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Catherine was born on the 24th of March 1347 in the city of Siena in central Italy. Her father, James, great name, was a wool dyer and her mother, Lapa, well all we really know about her is that she was the daughter of a poet and spent most of her adult life being pregnant. Catherine and her twin sister were the 23rd and 24th children of the couple with there being at least one more child afterwards. Now, at least half of these children sadly died in their early lives, but still, that is some quite prodigious childbearing. Siena, at the time, was a bustling and wealthy city, with over 50,000 inhabitants tightly packed within its walls. Arrival of nearby Florence, Siena specialised in the trading of leather and cloth, as well as banking, 
and was a self-governing city-state. While not of noble birth, Catherine's father was a prominent member of his will-dying guild and had a house large enough to contain his small army of children. Siena actually reminds me somewhat of ancient Pompeii, and like that ill-fated city, all that success was about to come crashing down. The Black Death arrived in Siena when Catherine was a year old, and the effects were apocalyptic. I talked about this in great detail in the series on Joanna, so I won't go over old ground, but you can only imagine how this incredibly infectious pathogen would sweep through the densely packed streets of Siena. Catherine's family appears to have emerged unscathed from the Black Death, but not many families were so lucky. It's estimated that between 30 and 50% of the city's population died, and that impact meant that demand for their trade plummeted, causing businesses to collapse. Medieval cities were never self-sustaining places. They relied on immigration to sustain or grow their populations. This massive death wave arrested the inward migration into cities across Europe, as peasants suddenly could make a much better living for themselves in the countryside, as their labour was now more in demand. This meant that the population and prosperity of Siena never really recovered. Always in the shadow of Florence, while that city would bounce back, Siena would never reach the economic and cultural heights of its pre-plague Catherine was too young to remember the Black Death, but her childhood was indelibly shaped by it. Curiously, her official biography neglects to mention it at all, and her childhood is described in fairly rosy terms. She's described as being happy and bubbly, and raised as much by her elder siblings as by her parents, who one can only imagine had their hands full. Urban children at this time would have primarily grown up playing on the balconies, streets and open spaces of the city, with public and private lives meshing together to create bustling communities. It can be said that Catherine was very much as much of a daughter of Siena as of James and Lapa. And of course, a constant soundtrack of her childhood would have been the church bells of the city. Her family was a pious one, even by the standards of the time. Her father was what is known as a Franciscan tertiary, a layman affiliated with the Franciscan order, and two of his sisters joined the Dominican order after their husbands died. Now, of course, descriptions of Catherine's early piety will always be informed by her later fame. Her biographers like to describe her as being chosen by God from birth, and that her piety was evident even from her earliest years. But, Even with that caveat, it seems certain that she took her prayers and religious duties very seriously as a child. She was most interested in private prayer and contemplation. Her house would have been loud and noisy with all her siblings, so she found quiet places wherever she could, and encouraged her friends, when they came over, to join her in kneeling or sitting in silent prayer, as if in a nunnery. The sources say that she experienced her first vision of God aged seven, while running an errand with one of her brothers. While passing the church of San Domenico, she saw in the sky above the church Jesus, dressed in papal robes and holding a staff, flanked by Saints Peter, Paul and John the Baptist. As she stopped and stared in wonder, Jesus made the sign of the cross in front of her. 
Catherine stood transfixed at the image, but was jolted back to reality by her brother tugging at her sleeve. She turned to admonish him, but when she returned her gaze to the sky, her vision had gone. This first vision made a profound impact on Catherine, as did her decision to turn away. She would later see it as an allegory for how easy it would be to be tempted into sin, how necessary self-discipline and solitude was in pure Christian faith. She continued to be fascinated by the stories of hermits living outside the city, and even sneaked out beyond the walls to find a quiet spot for contemplation and prayer. This is where being one of a massive brood of children came in helpful. It was easy to slip away and be back before your absence was noticed. She also became ever more extreme with her expressions of faith. She would go on extended fasts and practised violent penance, whipping herself whenever she felt she wasn't living up to her own Christian ideals. Aged eight, she took the next step and made a vow of eternal passion to Christ, secretly promising lifelong virginity and a spiritual marriage to Jesus, similar to the commitments made by various female saints in the past, including her namesake, Catherine of Alexandria. She didn't tell anyone this, fearing scorn and mockery. So when she reached her early teenage years, her parents did what any parents would be expected to do at the time, and began to think of potential husbands. Catherine was entirely uncooperative, wearing old manky clothes and refusing to come out in society. This continued for a while, until Bonaventura, one of her older sisters, talked around, and Catherine entered the period of her life she found most shameful. Her popular years. She dyed her hair a fashionable blonde, wore fancy clothes, and went out on social events. This isn't to say she went out partying, she was still the same prudish Christian girl she had always been, but her deep, passionate devotion to Jesus began to fade. However, when she turned 15, tragedy would change all of that. Bonaventura went into a difficult labour, and both mother and child died in childbirth. This was not only a deep personal loss, but a reminder for Catherine of the dangers of marriage and childbearing. She reaffirmed her commitment to living a life of chastity. But her parents had other ideas. They wanted her to marry Bonaventura's widower, a man she viewed as coarse and ungodly. Not to do things by halves, Catherine cut off all of her hair in an attempt to ward off male attention. Her family were furious, What right did she have to do this and prevent them from marrying her off to a rich man that could benefit the whole family? They punished her by demoting her to the status of a servant, doing all of the family's dirty work in the kitchens and cellars while they waited for her hair to grow back. If they expected this treatment to break her spirit, they were to be surprised. She undertook these duties without complaint, and they would often find her in peaceful prayer after her tasks were done. This Cinderella phase of her childhood ended, according to her biographer Raymond of Capua, when she gathered her family together and made a big speech. He writes, quote, It is now a long time since you first took counsel and began negotiations to have me married off as the bride of some mere mortal man. The very thought of this filled me with loathing, as I made plain to you in many silent waves, whose meaning, however, was unmistakable. 
But God has commanded us to honour our father and our mother, and I have never bluntly spoken out my mind until now for the reverence due to him. But the time has come when I can be silent no longer. Already when I was a child in years, I made a vow of virginity. Not, however, in the way a child would do, but after long consideration and acting on solid grounds. I made this vow to my Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and his glorious mother. I promised them that I would never take another spouse but him alone. And now, with time, as the Lord himself has willed it, I have arrived at mature age and mature knowledge. Take notice then that my resolution is so firm in this regard that it would be easier to soften the very rock than to move my heart a hair's breadth from its holy purpose. The more you try to do so, the more you will discover you are only wasting your time. Be advised by me and put a stop to any matchmaking in my regard once and for all. This is a matter in which I have not the slightest intention of yielding to your will. I must obey God rather than man. If you are willing to keep me in your house on this condition, even as a servant maid if you so desire, I am, for my part, willing to serve you with pleasure to the best of my knowledge and ability. But if you decide that I must, because of my resolve, be banished from your home, then rest assured that my heart will not deviate one jot from its resolution. Now it's worth saying that like most speeches recorded from ancient medieval history, this is probably more the imagination of the author rather than an actual record. But it does get across the determination, single-mindedness and commitment of Catherine rather well. Her family was won over and they ceased their search for her husband, allowing her instead to continue her life of faith. However, this did not mean they approved of how she practised her faith. Her mother, in particular, was extremely worried about her practice of self-flagellation. Catherine wore a rough chain about her body that chafed and rubbed her skin raw, and she graduated from whipping herself with a rope to an iron chain, sometimes for 90 minutes at a time. When she heard her daughter whipping herself, her mother would come to her door, begging her to stop, but Catherine would not often emerging sometime later with blood running from head to toe. It's a horrific image. Now you might have expected Catherine to look to take the veil and become a nun, but that life didn't really appeal to her. Instead, she was inspired by the Mantellates, laywomen attached to the Dominican order. Raymond of Capua states that this interest was piqued when St Dominic himself arrived in a dream. However, the Mantellates were traditionally all widows, so Catherine was denied entry. This refusal was quickly followed by a bout of chickenpox, a very dangerous disease at the time. Catherine told her mother that the only way she could be cured was by admission to the Mantellates. Lapa then went immediately to the convent and used every power of persuasion that she could muster. Thankfully, she prevailed, and Catherine recovered taking the veil and habit of a Dominican sister at the age of 18. This habit, which would be the only garment she would wear for the rest of her life, consisted of a white woolen tunic tied at the waist of the belt, and then a black mantle that covered it. On her head, she wore a white cloth headdress, or wimple, that covered her head, and wrapped under the chin, and then a veil to cover her face. Since the mantelates were a lay order, 
she did not live in a convent, but stayed at home. She was given a private room for peaceful prayer, a cupboard under the stairs, marking her transition from Cinderella to Harry Potter. Actually, that's a rather flippant remark, as a private room of any size in the Middle Ages was a mark of extreme luxury, especially with a family the size of hers. From there, Catherine's life became extremely simple. She stayed at her room in prayer, silence and contemplation. This monotony only interrupted to go to daily mass at San Domenico. She even rejected the normal call for charity that most religious women followed, that would only interrupt her life of solitude. You may see this as a cry for help, a dangerous sign of agoraphobia, but there was some method here. Catherine's childhood had been chaotic. She was constantly surrounded by others and struggled to find moments of calm and solitude. By cutting herself off from the human world, she hoped to become closer to God. She swore off sleep, claiming that she only dozed for one or two hours a day, and she fasted regularly and ate very little on those days that she wasn't. As we shall see, her life was marked by ill health, which surely has a lot to do with the extremely unhealthy way that she lived her life. Her modern biographer, Don Brophy, describes her as a holy anorexic, which describes her quite well. Her eating disorder was not motivated by depression or poor self-image as such. It was extremely religiously motivated, and then took on a life of its own that went beyond her control. Even when her family and religious figures that she trusted begged her to relent, she refused. She equally did not recommend her form of extreme fasting to others. Indeed, she impressed on them not to follow her example, and even described it as a weakness. Now, I don't want to get into too much detail about her religious practice, as this isn't a podcast about theology, but one cannot appreciate Catherine as a person without an understanding of how she worshipped and communed with the divine. The next turning point in her life came a few years later, with the onset of another vision. This was related by Raymond of Capua in his biography. According to him, she saw a host of apostles and prophets alongside the Virgin Mary and the Christ child. Mary took Catherine's hand and proffered it to her son, who placed a diamond ring on her finger. As he did so, Jesus said, quote, Behold, I espouse you to me in faith. That faith will be kept untarnished until the day when you will celebrate with me in the everlasting wedding feast in heaven. From now on, you must never falter about accepting any task my providence may lay upon your shoulders. This mystical marriage to Jesus ended her period of extreme solitude. She was now to emerge to do Christ's work in the outside world. After reintegrating herself into family life, Catherine began to go out into the community and do the charity work that she really should have been doing ever since she became a Mantellate sister. She would go to the homes of the poor and the sick, sometimes with her fellow sisters, other times alone. There, she would offer comfort, clean and rebandage wounds, offer them food and pray with them. 
Through her journeys through the busy, winding streets and alleys of Siena, she was reconnecting with an earlier, more carefree part of her life. But now she saw the city with new, more worldly eyes. Siena was still in the economic depression it had suffered through since the onslaught of the Black Death two decades earlier, and the gap between rich and poor was only widening. She was deeply connected to both sides of this divide. She spent her days with the poor and the needy, but she was connected to the ruling elite through her family. Her brothers worked for the city government, and many of her fellow sisters had come from wealthy and or noble families. This bridge meant that Catherine could speak to all parts of society, and her engaging, honest and straightforward manner meant that she began to gather a group of disciples around her. This is when miracles start to become associated with her. For example, Tuscany experienced a wave of crop failures in 1370. So Catherine performed a miracle of turning bad flour into good, enabling more bread to be sold to the starving masses. Her visions increased in number and the size of the cast of characters that appeared to her, giving Catherine a real sense that she was living between the human world and the divine, both of which were as real to her as the other. In one of these reveries, according to Raymond of Capua, Jesus gave Catherine a new instruction, to go forth beyond the walls of Siena and preach his message. This was the extract that I read at the start of this episode where Christ extolled her to, quote, give proofs of the spirit that is in you before the small and great, before lay folk, clergy and religious, for I will give you a mouth and a wisdom which none shall be able to resist. This reverie, often called her mystical death, came in a period when she was in extremely poor health. While experiencing the vision, she reportedly stopped breathing for four minutes and was administered the last rites. She said she saw visions of heaven and hell and was determined to carry out the ministry that Jesus had laid out for her. These visions and miracles only increased her fame and following. Large crowds would follow her to mass from all walks of life, from nuns and artists, noble women to the destitute. They would gather en masse to hear her speak and would call her mama or mother. Her growing fame within her home city is best shown in 1371, when riots broke out. Poor wool workers, angered at low pay and bad working conditions, rioted, their targets being wealthy merchants and artisans, among them being Catherine's elder brothers. They holed up in the family home, but knew they would not be able to hold out for long before the mob broke in. Catherine offered them sanctuary in the city hospital, but they would need to f- cross a city full of people baying for their blood to get there. Not to worry, said Catherine, I will go with you, and no one will harm you while you are under my protection. And that is exactly what happened. People who only moments before were in full lynch mob mode bowed respectfully to Catherine and let her and her brothers pass. They reached the hospital and stayed there until tempers had died down. She would also communicate with her followers with letters, a great many of which survive to this day. She was illiterate herself until late in life, so employed scribes to whom she dictated a growing volume of correspondence. This is how she began to have influence beyond Siena. 
as her letters were addressed not only to friends and followers, but princes, kings, and even popes. These letters followed a basic formula, no matter to whom they were addressed. They would begin with a blessing, followed by her opining on a particular spiritual theme, using expansive metaphors and biblical allegories to punctuate her points. These were tailored to the addressee. To monks and nuns, she urged obedience and humility. To kings, she recommended compassion and justice. Only after sometimes pages and pages of this would she then get to the pleasantries of the letter, if the reader ever got that far. This is how she first gained the attention of the papacy. When now, in 1374, and over in Avignon, Pope Gregory XI had just ascended to the throne of St. Peter. His predecessor, Urban V, had tried to return to Rome, but been forced out due to the instability of Italian politics. Gregory was keen to learn more about this young woman from Siena, whose fame was projected far and wide. He sent an envoy to meet her and report back. Gregory was looking for prophets that could amplify his message to the masses. He wanted to make another attempt at returning to Italy, and needed people like Catherine to create a groundswell of support. In return, Gregory could offer Catherine his holy indulgence, a spiritual endorsement that could only increase her level of fame and recognition. This was important because Catherine was beginning to attract detractors. Her opponents can broadly be split into three groups. There were those within her own mantle order who disapproved of her growing celebrity and the habit of speaking frankly to male authority. To these critics, she usually offered kindness, thanking them for their guidance. The second group were sceptics, who didn't believe that all the stories associated with Catherine could be true. She surely couldn't measure up to the hype. They accused her of overzealous pride and dishonesty. They would follow her around, looking to catch her out, but largely found that the stories were, in fact, true. She was as kind, devoted and passionate as the propaganda said. The final group were misogynists, those who couldn't bring themselves to believe that God could choose a woman to lead men. Catherine spoke to men as she did to women, and in such a hugely patriarchal society as medieval Italy, that rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way. This was the hardest group for her to win over, as there was little she could do to overcome generations of male culture. However, the force of her personality and depth of theological knowledge gained from listening to scholars did convince many that she was the real deal, despite the supposed weakness of her sex. This new papal favour began to open previously forbidden doors. Later that year, she was invited to Florence by the city's Dominican chapter to one of their meetings. Women were usually excluded from such events, so this was a real recognition of her fame. The Florentine Dominicans wanted to examine this woman at first hand and figure out what to make of her. She passed this test with flying colours and was assigned a new confessor, Raymond of Capua, who, as we know already, would become a close friend and confidant for the rest of her life and would eventually pen the authoritative biography of her. Raymond was a significant figure in the Dominican order and was well-connected in the courts of Italy and beyond. He was nobly born and erudite, 
complementing Catherine's charisma and bold personality. This visit also saw the compilation and publication of a short book called The Miracoli, a collection of stories of miracles associated with Catherine of Siena, along with stories about her life and ministry. We don't know who actually wrote it, but it is the only one written about her during her own lifetime. However, the success of this visit was soon overshadowed by disaster back in Siena. The plague had returned, carrying off almost as many people as in the initial outbreak three decades earlier. Catherine lost two siblings and eight nieces and nephews to the disease, an unfathomable personal loss, but she didn't have time to grieve. Along with her Mantelite sisters, she worked day and night tending to the sick and bringing them food and comfort, at great personal risk. As you might imagine, this is where many stories of her healing miracles begin to appear. In these, Catherine appears at the bedside of a patient who's at death's door. She offers them comfort and tells them they'll live. She'll pray by their side, sometimes going into a trance, and soon, miraculously, they were cured. All of this activity, coupled with the utterly inadequate quantity of food she was consuming, took a huge toll on her. There were days when she was too exhausted to even get out of bed, meaning that when the plague eventually receded, she needed time to recover. This meant that she didn't do much until the following year, when she embarked on her biggest trip yet, a visit to the nearby Tuscan city of Pisa. Pisa at the time was pro-Guelph, a bit of an outlier in a region led by Florence that was growing ever closer to the Ghibelline, which is the anti-papal pro-empire party. Siena was aligned with Florence at this time, so a visit by Catherine to enemy territory could cause scandal, especially as she was known to be quite pro-pope. She needed a reason to go, and fortunately, one emerged. A crusade. A truce between England and France and warring factions in northern Italy meant that Western Christendom was ready for another expedition to the Near East. To promote the crusade, Pope Gregory appointed three spokespeople, one of whom was Raymond of Capua. So therefore, his going to Pisa would be seen as part of this papal mission, and it would of course be perfectly proper for Catherine to go and preach the crusade alongside him. She wasn't just along for the ride, she was extremely keen to go on this crusade. She firmly believed that martyrdom on crusade guaranteed entry into heaven. She was under no illusions that she would survive the crusade, but that didn't concern her. She was perfectly willing to die for her faith. Raymond and Catherine looked to recruit everyone from nuns to knights to the crusade in Pisa. In one letter, written to a full convent, she used expansive imagery to promote the prospect of martyrdom on Holy Crusade. Quote, There is no way we can have this driving force of great and boundless desire except through the driven and crucified love of God's Son. Don't be afraid, but be like knights drawn up on the battlefield, armed with the sword of divine charity. This sword is the whip that beats the devil. Understand that if we don't want to lose the weapon with which we have to defend ourselves, we must keep it hidden in the house of true knowledge of ourselves. I am inviting you to the church of the Holy Sepulchre, there to give your lives for him. The Holy Father has sent a letter with his seal, 
to enroll all those who desire and are willing to go to win back the Holy Sepulchre and die for the Holy Faith. I am inviting you to get ready. In preaching this crusade, Catherine was doing more than just enrolling men and women to a military expedition. She was inviting all her listeners to engage more deeply with their faith and give themselves more completely to God. Her letters were so moving to their audiences that they were extensively copied and distributed. But while people responded to her general message and attended her speeches in their multitudes, the sign-up sheets were hardly filled with signatures. The recently signed peace treaties were already creaking. Recent ravages of plague meant that estates needed every man they could get, and the recent records of crusades were hardly favourable. Almost all had ended in death, disaster and failure, and there was little sign that this would be any different. This, though, did not deter Catherine from continuing her work, and she found an ally in none other than Queen Joanna I of Naples. She still claimed the title of Queen of Jerusalem, and Catherine was keen for her to join the expedition. She wrote to Joanna, quote, Oh, what a great joy will it be to see you giving blood for blood. May I see the fire of holy desire so growing at the remembrance of the blood of God's Son that you may be the leader and patroness of this holy crusade. For if you stand up and declare your willingness to do this, you will find Christians very willing to join you. I beg you, for the love of Christ crucified, to be zealous about this. But, of course, her journey to Pisa hadn't just been about the crusade. It was about trying to promote the Pope's cause in Italy. Key was trying to pull Milan away from the Florence-led alliance. After failing to convince the tyrant of Milan, she appealed to his wife to, quote, challenge him, beg him with all of your might to behave like a true servant and son of Christ crucified, to be obedient to the Holy Father and to cease being rebellious. Appealing to women in this way was highly unusual in this period where women had very few rights. However, Catherine recognised that women, even when culturally subordinated, could have great influence and sought to use it. Catherine's efforts to peel allies away from the Florentines began to overtake the crusade in importance, as Pisa and her neighbour Luca wavered on which side of an increasingly inevitable war they were to back. She frequently travelled between the two cities, making speeches and urging their leaders to back the Pope against his foes. She was, though, increasingly frustrated at the lack of support she was getting from the Pope on all of this. In a letter, she urged him to be more firm, more like his illustrious namesake, Gregory the Great. Quote, If till now you haven't been very firm in truth, I want you, I beg you, for the little time that is left to be so, courageously and like a brave man. And don't be afraid, Father, no matter what may happen, or those blustery winds that have descended upon you. I mean those rotten members who have rebelled against you. Don't be afraid, for divine help is near. Just attend to holy affairs, to appointing good pastors and administrators in your cities, for you have experienced rebellion because of bad pastors and administrators. Do something about it. Forgive me, Father, for talking to you like this. 
I beg you to communicate with Luca and Pisa as a father, and God will teach you. Help them in any way you can, and urge them to keep holding their ground. I have been in Pisa and Luca until just now, and have pleaded with them as strongly as I could not to join the League with the rotten members who are rebelling against you. But they are very anxious, since they aren't getting any encouragement from you, and are being constantly goaded and threatened by the other side. I beg you to write an urgent letter about this, and without delay. This letter is Catherine in a nutshell. Big imagery and very direct. It's easy to forget that she is a merchant's daughter writing to the Pope. This would be considered a bit forward even today. Imagine how it would have come across 700 years ago. As I've said, this style had made her famous, but did rub people up the wrong way. Sadly, we don't have the reply to this letter, so we'll never know how the Pope took this criticism. What we do know is that, not long after, Luca, Pisa, and her home city of Siena signed up to the Florentine League, taking up arms against the Pope. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.